What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Miss, stop. Stop! We are getting ready for a production here. Mr. Stevens, I just traveled 1,117 miles to get here. I would really love a chance to audition for you. I can't accept you alone. There is a committee. Well, how long would it take to get them all here? (sighs) Give me 10 minutes. Hey, everybody. This is Aisha Harris, your host, and welcome to the latest episode of Represent. This week, we'll be chatting with actress and activist Koryanka Kilcher, star of Teata, a biographical film about the life of Teata Fisher, a Chickasaw Nation citizen who helped tell the stories of Native Americans through her performances across the country and throughout much of the 20th century. But before we get into that, I've got Represent's own wonderful social media assistant, Marissa Martinelli, and Oni Hartstein, an entrepreneur and movie fan here to discuss an interesting trope that has found its way into two movies this year. So welcome, Marissa. Hi, Aisha. Welcome back. It's great to have you. Always happy to be here. (laughs) And welcome, Oni. This is your first time. We're so glad to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you for reaching out. Of course. So Marissa, in a piece you wrote for Slate this week, you discussed uh, The Ticket which stars Dan Stevens and All I See Is You, which stars Blake Lively and is released last weekend. Each involves characters who are legally blind and soon gain sight, and the effects have dramatic consequences for their lives and families. Now, interestingly enough, Oni has had her own personal experience of gaining sight for the first time uh, in her 30s and wrote about it earlier this year for Birth Movies Death. And so it's great to have you both here to discuss Um, So essentially, I know I have watched in preparation for this discussion, I watched uh, At First Sight, which is a movie that came out in 1999 and stars Val Kilmer and Mira Servino, which I think you also mentioned briefly in your piece, Marissa, Mm -hmm. um, and also has the similar trope. And I also watched The Ticket. And Oni, you watched The Ticket, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yes, I did. Okay, awesome. So we've seen those movies. Marissa, you've seen a lot more (laughs) than we have. So you'll fill us in a little bit on some of the the background and the tropes that we're talking about. But first, uh, Oni... As someone who this is, you've had this experience, was this something you were familiar with as a movie trope before uh, we're having this discussion or is this sort of new to you? It was it was new, actually. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it was new to me as well. But Marissa, I know that you have you're familiar with this, obviously. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about it and, you know, what your piece is sort of uh, dealing with with all of these different movies in in this trope? Sure. I mean, the trope specifically is about people in movies, characters in movies who are blind and regain their sight and in the process of regaining their sight, uh, it devastates their relationship. 
specifically like romantic relationships. Um, and when I first saw the trailer for All I See Is You, um, which is, just came out recently, uh, I had a very strange sense of deja vu. So the movie is directed by Mark Forrester and it stars Blake Lively as a woman who moves with her husband to Thailand for his job and she's blind and sort of the combination of the language barrier and her being blind means that she's more dependent on him than usual. Um, and so when she has the opportunity to have surgery to restore her sight because she lost her eyesight as a teenager in a car accident, she jumps at the chance and in the process, uh, their relationship completely unravels. Um, and when I was watching the trailer for this, I was like, didn't this movie already come out this year? Mm-hmm. And and there was another movie that hit theaters this year, and it was The Ticket, starring Dan Stevens as a man who has been blind since childhood. And his sight comes back to him basically overnight, and it unravels his marriage with his wife. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine that this can be very tricky territory to handle because the whole idea of someone regaining their sight or gaining their sight for the first time mm-hmm. um, is in the fact that it, it has a devastating consequence, like a very negative consequence on the relationships. That seems kind of tricky to imply, uh, I feel like. But y- according to you, the the movies handle these, these things differently. Um, one may be better than the other. I think that's largely a matter of preference, but they are very different in some ways. They do have a lot in common. Um, both characters... They regain their sight. In Blake Lively's case, she her character Gina had a chance to prepare because this is something she was actively seeking. Um, for Dan Stevens' character, James, it happens overnight, but they both experience similar revelations. So they both get to see their living quarters for the first time. And Gina finds that she doesn't like her apartment in Thailand. It's very sterile with very modern furnishings. It's not her taste. Um, James finds that his house is sort of ramshackle and it's like a cozy little house in a rural community, but they both want to live somewhere else. They don't like what they see. Um, they both have scenes where they look in the mirror and discover like, oh, I'm a very conventionally attractive actor. (laughs) Um, I should start dressing nicely and for Blake Lively wearing makeup and she dyes her hair blonde and looks like Blake Lively. Um, and yeah, and it puts a lot of strain on the relationship in the process. Yeah. And one of the other things about the James character in uh, The Ticket is that he's sort of, at, someone does call him an asshole. He sort of becomes an asshole um, in the process mm. because not only does he start to dress better, but he also, and, and the house doesn't seem like it, like he doesn't like the house as much now that he knows what it looks like. He also now starts to seek out other women uh, outside of his relationship. What's interesting is that both characters have affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, for Blake Lively's character, it comes late in the film. But for in the ticket, it's early on, like he's clearly very interested in, in other women. Yeah. Uh, which is just another another thing they have in common. But the ticket is much less sympathetic toward James. So he's positioned as sort of an, an antihero or even sort of the villain in his own movie. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas All I See Is You, there are, are hints that there are serious problems in the relationship before uh, Gina has surgery. And her husband is not a very likable guy. There are a lot of red flags. Mm-hmm. Um, so that movie is much more sympathetic toward her. Now, 
Oni, one of the things, uh, I don't know if you read any of the, the, the descriptions for the ticket, but I was reading the description for the ticket. Um, it's on Wikipedia. I don't know if it's the like official summary tagline, but it reads, it, it describes the whole plot of him re, uh, regaining his sight suddenly. Um, and then it says, however, James finds himself becoming metaphorically blinded by his obsession for the superficial oh. in his pursuit of, of success. Um, now... <laughs> This is uh, this wording of becoming metaphorically blinded. So listeners may have actually heard uh, our recent episode with Victoria Cruz, uh, where we discussed uh, the she was the sort of star of the movie, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. And uh, a listener pointed out to me after the fact that um she at one point in the in our conversation she mentions that people um need to not be uh, allies need to not be blind and and deaf to the things that are um afflicting people of color and trans women of color and he pointed out that you know that's something that is not necessarily okay to say um i was not aware of this this was something that completely passed by me but it made me think about the way in which we phrase these things um and the idea of using sight and sound as uh metaphors for um not like being ignorant that sort of thing and so I read that description. And I was like, oh, this is pretty, pretty bad. And I'm curious as to like, what was your take on the ticket? And do you think that it fell into any tropes that you feel sort of negatively impact the people who cannot see, who can actually not see? I didn't really feel overly negative about like, I didn't, my take on it was he probably just naturally was that kind of person. And, you know, because cause for me, um, when I got my sight, I realized some of the things that I was doing and some of the places that I was, you know, at and the relationships I had weren't really working, but it wasn't like, it, it allowed me to become myself. Like I started uh, singing more. I started creating more art and everything like that. So my take on on that was that maybe the person on that film wanted to make a point about like, you know, capitalism and 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 greed and stuff in addition to it. I, I didn't see anything negative about blind people personally, but, um, you know, that's just me. I I don't want to speak for everybody, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Um, you know, like I, I found it, I found it to be a bit weird in the beginning of the film, how he was kind of just like, it, it almost was a little creepy. They were just lounging around and there was a lot of vocal fry being used in, in how the actors were kind of like talking. And I, I don't know if, it kind of made me uncomfortable. Like, were they, I mean, if anything, it would be like, are they trying to say that blind people are just kind of like, herp we're just hanging out. Like, no, you know, <laughs> I, I always had a very active imagination. I always had a very active, um, you know, way of speaking. So, I mean, that would be the only thing that I would see would be kind of bizarrely negative, but I didn't really jump to that immediately, if that made any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That totally makes sense. It was just something that I was just made more acutely aware of and and having a listener point that out to me. And I mean, Marissa, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how this relates to (laughs) the poor Miss Finch, which is sort of the anchor of your piece. Right. Um, Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I've been calling this trope the poor Miss Finch plotline after a an 1872 novel by Wilkie Collins called Poor Miss Finch. Um, 
This novel has basically the exact same premise, which is that the main character, Lucilla Finch, uh, is blind. And she's blind, but she has an irrational fear of dark colors. Um, she's never seen dark colors. She just has this this sense that she hates them. Um, and this extends to people with dark complexions. Um, and she there's like a really on-the-nose line early in the book where she's like, oh, if I ever married a man and then found out he had a dark complexion, I would run away and leave him. <laughs> and so naturally... Uh, she becomes engaged to a man who does not have a dark complexion, um, but he become he has epilepsy, and so as part of his treatment, he takes um, silver nitrate, which is was actually a real treatment for epilepsy, and has the side effect of turning your skin like basically bluish black, and so she doesn't know that, and he's horrified at the idea that she might find out. Uh, so when a doctor comes to them and, and says that he can restore her sight or, or grant her sight for the first time, he's horrified and it, it threatens the whole relationship and he runs away and he's got a twin brother because this is a Wilkie Collins novel and mm-hmm. his twin brother does not have blue skin. And there's all this drama that ensues. Uh, but but it's the same basic premise that sort of the idea taken literally that love is blind mm-hmm. and that if you take away the blindness you jeopardize the love. Yeah, I mean, that was something that was also at the end of At First Sight, the Val Kilmer movie, which is actually based on a true story about a man who was blind and then had surgery to regain his sight, and but then the surgery didn't last. And I think that's another thing that we see throughout these um, <clears throat> throughout all of these examples is that it doesn't it doesn't last like they eventually lose their sight again to some extent um, and he says at the end in a, in a voiceover something along the lines of like I feel like even though I don't have my sight anymore I still feel as though like I see more than other people or um, like my vision not having sight makes me more aware of things and people mm. who have sight um, and only like this is since this is sort of your your narrative, this is part of your life, can you talk a little bit about just, like, the decision you made to get the surgery? You talk about it in the piece that you wrote for Birth, Movies, Death, which is really great, but I'd love for you to, like, share a little bit more about, like, what that experience has been like and how that's translated into how you view movies now. Yeah, it was really strange. I haven't seen a lot of movies that, like, you guys have probably seen like I haven't seen Jaws you know basic basic movies that everyone has pretty much seen because it's always been difficult you know and for me like I didn't even realize it until after I got the surgery and I would kind of play it off like I don't like that but it wasn't that I didn't like it it was that I was just kind of frustrated with the effort that it took to to really partake in that um like I like I was born legally blind which means I could see shape and color um you know and I could get some contact lenses that would correct me maybe if I was lucky to 2060, but they would cause serious eye infections. They'd be very painful. Um, I would have um, floaters and flashers. It would look like I had um, the 80s polar bear and snowstorm effect. Uh, I still have some of that. But, um, you know, there was only so far it could be corrected to. So when they actually were able to correct me, I developed cataracts really early because I'm severely, I was like a minus 26, severely nearsighted, um, deformed eyeballs and deformed retinas. Um, when they actually did the surgery to correct it and I was 20, 25, it was so surreal. You know, you go to sleep and you wake up and you're able to see, 
Um, not perfectly like, like you guys may know, but it, it was just, it was just weird. Like the, the decision to get the surgery was really a no brainer because it was getting to the point where I wouldn't be able to do even what I considered at that point, basic tasks, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as far as the decision, it was really, it was really a no brainer. It was like, I was going to lose my sight almost completely, you know, as the lens just deteriorated and it was deteriorating fast. So aside from like finally getting to the point where you decided to have the surgery and describing sort of what you, how, what it was like for you, do you feel as though these, these representations that we've talked about now are, do you feel as though they, they describe your experience somewhat accurately of what it's like to see for the first time? Um, or do you feel as though they're, they're maybe off the, they're a little out there or they're super dramatized in a way that's not truthful to your experience, at least? I feel like for the ticket, um, you know, a lot of his, the way he was looking around was kind of like, you know, he was like touching his wife. He was kind of like, you know, for me, it was all like, I, I saw what I looked like for the first time because the only way I was able to truly see myself in focus was I was, I was like, I had microscope vision. So I was focused to the tip of my nose and no further. Um, so, you know, I could see parts of my face, but not the full thing. So for me, it was like, oh my God, the sky's blue because I wasn't seeing color accurately either. Mm -hmm. I wasn't more focused on looking at other people. I was focused more on the world and how I fit in it. So I feel like the way he was portrayed was, you know, maybe other people are different from me, but how it was for me was, what does my face look like? Um, everything's a different size. My hands looked larger because my previous eyes shrunk everything somehow. Um, so I kept knocking glasses over and I, I, I actually got very upset and, and nobody warned me about this. Nobody. I would, you know, I, I freaked out and I almost wanted, I wanted to go back because I started crying and I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know my coping mechanisms that I had to see. They were very good. Mm -hmm. I had this way of walking forward and I would see it wasn't perfect. You know, I've walked into the men's room before, but, um, you know, I could count like these units that I would define and I would go by, you know, big landmarks like a McDonald's sign. You could tell what a McDonald's was, you know, you could see the colors and you could go. So, you know, I didn't use street names. So my coping mechanisms all flew out the window and because these lenses they implanted in my eyes, I can't focus near or far. I have progressive lenses, um, you know, so I, I'm focused to where my iPhone is or my computer screen without correction. But, you know, so now it's like I have to wear prescription sunglasses and prescription glasses or the contacts I have to wear aren't really perfect. Sometimes they, the one pair I have, they clip my distance off. The other pair I can't read. So I had to develop new coping mechanisms for how to see because I was so bad. The surgery did not get me to 2020 and I knew that in advance. Yeah. But, um, you know, as far as how people interacted with me, people had trouble not treating me like I was disabled. And that was the hardest thing. A lot of, you know, so I would say, yes, a lot of this is accurate. And it's why I was less satisfied. I mean, with the ticket, maybe they were just trying to say he was naturally a jerk to begin with. But for me, I was just like, okay, I can do things on my own. And, you know, some people weren't able to transition into that because I feel like when you're disabled, you do attract people that are control minded, right? So, 
you know, they, they want to, they don't, they don't even see it. They don't mean it, but they, their interaction with you is because they want to make you feel better. And the thing that, 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 that was said in the ticket was, oh, you're, you know, uh, James said to his wife, like, oh, you're, you're losing control. You're you're afraid of losing control. And that was the most resonant thing in that movie Mm -hmm. to me, because I was like, you know, they didn't really show their relationship before which I think it would have been a stronger film had they done that. And, and they had shown that she was a little control oriented. Um, but that would also kind of tip the sympathy scale a little more toward him, which I don't know if they wanted to do, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I still get scared. Uh, and I think I'm a different person in the mirror. I'm like, I, I almost said hello to myself because <laughs> the store, I walked into a store and it had a full length mirror just like three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes extra processing power for my brain to decode what I am seeing because it never had it before. Yeah. So yeah, it it was pretty accurate to the point that I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and it, how long has it been now since you got the surgery? It was throughout two, uh, 2016. So my okay. first surgery was in see, February, March. I, I would say around June 2016, the surgery was finished. And then I would say through end of end of 2016. Because it took me a while to get used to seeing and my new glasses. And mm-hmm. I still assumed that I wouldn't be able to see things. So I would get scared. And then I would be like, oh, oh, wait, I can do this. I just want to yeah. chime in. I just want to say I'm so interested in the fact that everything you just described, Oni, is really similar to the Val Kilmer movie. Yeah, I was going to say the sight, same thing. Um, he has that exact same experience where he at one point looks in a mirror and is like, oh, hi. And, and he doesn't realize it's his reflection. Um, and it's interesting because that is the example we're talking about that's actually based on a true story. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that that experience mirrors yours so closely. Yeah. And also the aspect of the sister, his sister being very like wanting to keep looking after him even after the fact. And she has a conversation <clears throat> with Mira Servino's character, who Mira Servino is the love interest of Al Kilmer. And she has a conversation with his sister about like, you need to let him go and she's like but he's my whole life it's like yeah everything you described seems very it reminds me a lot of at first sight in that way which is i don't think it's a very good movie just generally it's sort of a (laughs) silly romantic comedy that's a little cheesy yeah it's super cheesy also like the entire plot is spurred by mira servino's character taking a vacation and he's her massage therapist and she's known him for like five minutes when she's like you should get this experimental surgery that i just googled five minutes ago (laughs) yeah there's there's some there's some (laughs) but because it is based on cheryl jennings and this real case i guess those parts of the story had a basis in psychology and medical fact yeah yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I actually, I, I wouldn't be in Los Angeles if I hadn't gotten the eye surgery. I took a risk and I said, look, I had really put a lot of my, my passions that I wanted to pursue in life. I had really just kind of assumed, oh, I'm just going to go along for the ride with other people. And, you know, oh, I can't really do that. I just said, the heck with it. I put everything in, in, in a bag and I moved to LA and that's what, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. So to wrap this up, Oni, you know, I've we've already talked about how there's a lot of similarities between your story and some of the stories we talked about today. But is there any other sort of representation you'd want to see uh, with regards to people who are blind when it comes to movies and TV shows? Or what do you think that they could be doing even better uh, than they already have or to some extent maybe have it? I feel like defining 
um, what being blind actually is could be done a little better. Uh, because a lot of people assume you're seeing a complete black, nothing, you mm-hmm. know, black, dark square, whatever. And, you know, for me, it wasn't the case. And actually most people who knew me, who I didn't tell had no idea I was blind. None. Um, I had such good coping mechanisms, but you know, blindness can be obstructed vision. It can be extreme myopia. Like I had, it can be so many things. So, so yeah, I mean, fleshing out that these are real people, they have real internal dialogues. And a lot of us, like I never thought of my, I didn't wake up in the morning and say, Hey, I'm blind. I woke up in the morning was like, Hey, I need some coffee. And I just did my thing. So I even lied to myself and didn't like, it wasn't a big factor in my life because I think that was my coping mechanism. If I focus on it, it would have driven me insane. You know, I focus on what I have and what I, not what I don't. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a little more nuance to that, I think, than, than what came across in the ticket at least. Well, thank you so much, Oni, for joining us and for talking about this and diving into this very interesting trope. Extremely specific trope. It's a very specific trope. Yes, yes. Yeah. And thank you, Marissa, for uh, joining us as well. And as always, for being our social media system. (laughs) Thanks, Aisha. Thanks so much. You know, Mary, I've been given these monologues for years and years, and everyone does Shakespeare. Everyone. Did you know you're the first Indian that ever enrolled at OCW? And that's not a crutch. It's an advantage. What could you show me that I haven't seen before? What can you offer that all these little sugar cookies can't? <laughs> That's what I want to see. See you in class. Thank you, Miss Davis. Up next, my interview with Koryaka Kilcher, star of the movie Teata. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, Teata Fisher, born Mary Frances Thompson, was a Chickasaw Nation citizen who became a cultural ambassador of sorts for her tribe and many others, bringing their stories to audiences across the country and around the world. Her 60-year career included performances for Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House and for the King and Queen of England. During our conversation, Kilcher and I discussed the -the behind-the-scenes involvement of the Chickasaw Nation, being typecast, and how her activism influences her work, among many other things. Check it out. Well, joining me this morning, uh, (laughs) (laughs) straight off of the flight, so we really appreciate her coming directly from, were you at LGA or JFK? Do you remember? JFK. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming to our Brooklyn studios to talk to us. Koryanka Kilcher, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you on. So you were born in Germany to your mom, I think, is Swiss German. Mm-hmm. And your dad is of indigenous Peruvian descent. Ah, uh, you did your research. I did my research. <laughs> and you, you know, so you are... You were not originally born in America. Um, and I imagine there were a lot of people like myself who are Americans who have never heard of Teata before. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I had not before watching the movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious as to what your exposure had been to her, if at all, before you got the role. And what was your research like for the role? I actually 
did not know who Teata was before um, before a friend of mine, Wombly Eagleman, um, who's an actor and model, told me that they were doing this film about a really cool, powerful young woman. And I was like, oh, this one's so cool. Are they still casting for it? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And then so I looked Teata up on the internet. And um, and then I started uh, researching her life. And I was just blown away by her career. What a an extraordinary young visionary woman she was. Um, because she really was not just uh, an ambassador for the Chickasaw Nation, which was her tribe, but for all Native American tribes. And through her storytelling and through her art, you know, she really broke down those cultural barriers and um, would tell stories from all different tribes and share them with not people just within her community, but on an international um, basis. So she performed for President Roosevelt and then also for royalty in Europe and uh, traveled the world and, and, and shared um, her shared traditional stories. So um, the more that I found out about her, I was just, I was blown away. And so I met with the director and um, I came in at the 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 very end of everything. I think they were looking at two other actresses already. Mm-hmm. And so I met with him, and um, I do have a background in dance and music. I love, love, love singing. I actually always mm-hmm. thought the music would take off before the acting, but it happened the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he went back to the Chickasaw Nation, and uh, I guess... They approved of me. And this was the director, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the director, Nathan Frankowski. Mm -hmm. I think that's how you say his last name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I was just, I was so humbled and so, so thankful that they, uh, that they entrusted me to uh, bring to life Teata on the big screen and, um, for me, the most important thing while filming was to really do the memory of her justice, because I am not Chickasaw. I am Quechuan Wachipaide from the jungles and highlands of South America. Um, you know, I was thinking, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get it. Mm-hmm. But oh wow, what an amazing role! Because it's not that often that you come across roles like this where it's a, it's a strong, powerful, dignified. Like woman, I want to ask you a bit more about the fact that you're not Chickasaw mm-hmm. and the Chickasaw Nation ap- approving mm-hmm. of your casting. I mean, so I know that within um, ethnicities and within different backgrounds, there's a little bit more leeway or more acceptance of people playing roles that are not necessarily uh, their background. So right. it's okay for someone like Jennifer Lopez, who is Puerto Rican, to play Selena, who is Mexican. Mm-hmm. Or um, I'm trying to think of it. Like we, we see Asian characters playing across different, they may be Korean, but they're playing Chinese. Like we see that. I mean, often. it's a, it's a, it's okay. But at the same time, you do, you do get a little backlash at times. Right. Did you face anything like that? Outside um, of the Chickasaw Nation, or have you seen any complaints about that? Uh, no, I, I, I mean, not, not personally. I haven't yeah. gotten any horrible messages. Well, that's like, good. Ah. <laughs> um, you know, I was just, I, I was so overjoyed um, that 
the family members of Teata and friends of her that um, that used to know her, um, after they saw the film, they wrote me emails and called me, mm-hmm. and they were just so happy, and they thanked me for for the way that I portrayed her in the film. And I mean, I was like so overjoyed and so happy because I was like, okay, ah, good. Like if the family members are happy with, with, um, with my performance of how I brought her to life in the film and they're happy with the film, you know, that's one of the most important, important things to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was fortunate enough to work with several of the family members while filming, and that was such a treat because I got some wonderful inside information um, because oftentimes if you are portraying somebody that has been alive or something, you might not necessarily be able to um, have that well of information directly from family members and people that know them when they're not on stage and when they're just in their household. And so to just listen and see some videos of her when she was at home and how she would interact with people and the way that she told stories when she would be in her house and different things, it was just... um, it was it was so beautiful and it was so great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she did live a very long life. She lived to be ninety nine. Ninety nine, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's great that you did have. She passed away in ninety five, so it's been a while. So it's great that you still had people who could remember, who were still around, who yeah, knew her personally that could remember. Yeah, her. Governor Bill Anatubby, who is also actually played a a small little role in the film. He actually knew Teata, and he's actually the one that's that that has been very instrumental in having the Chickasaw tribe, you know, um, it's kind of his baby of having them tell this story and get into film. And I think it's such a beautiful blueprint. And I hope um, more people and more different tribes are inspired by what the Chickasaw are doing, because I think it's important that we start telling our own stories. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes, you know, people take our great stories and they tell them in their way. And so it was beautiful to have the Chickasaw Nation really be from the beginning, from down to casting and everything, be such a big part of their story being told. Was that the case? You were also Pocahontas in The New World. Uh-huh. Um which was directed by Terrence Malick. Was that the case? Uh, did you have access to the tribes for that movie as well? Or was this sort of your first experience with working with another nation? I did have uh, access for that one. Oof, that was a long time ago. Yeah. It was a little, it was a, it was a bit different. Um, they had a lot of cultural advisors. Mm. And uh, I had about a month of preparation where I was learning uh, Algonquian and um, reading, researching so many different books because, I mean, in every book that I read, everyone had a different opinion as to who they thought Pocahontas was. Right. Was she the savior of her people? Was she? Did she betray them? Like, mm. so... In doing that film, I dealt with, you know, needing to do a lot of research and then sitting down with myself and reading the script um, and the story that Terry had envisioned and then kind of deciding who I thought she was and how I wanted to portray her. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a, the process of that was a bit different um, because on this one, I had Jeannie Barber. Um, who was who, a member of the Chickasaw Nation, yes, correct? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's a screenwriter for yeah, um, for Teata. Teata. Yeah. yeah, she had all the information on Teata, and so I worked with her. And I was really thankful to the whole creative team because, you know, in the script it says, and then Teata performs, and that's so great. Mm-hmm. But what am I going to perform? Right. I don't know. <laughs> well, you had did you have a count like you had accounts of what the types of things she performed? Yeah, I did. But also, I, I and why I was so thankful to the creative team was because, um, you know, they really allowed me to almost like Teata would have done reach out to my family members like Earl Tuli um, from the, the Navajo Reservation Diné. Um, and I asked, uh, he's, he's my great uncle and I asked him for permission to use one of, um, one of the songs in our family. And, uh, so, I mean, it was kind of what Teata did, which was breaking down those cultural barriers and, and, um, really reaching out to different communities and asking for songs, asking for dances and different things. So, um, because in the script it would say that and there was not not too many um cues or it wasn't so specific right. of like and then uh, having like a video of like okay this is the particular dance and song you're going to do mm. i was i was able to create um over like 15 live performances and so for me, it was one of the most challenging roles I've ever done because I had to draw on my musical and dance background and try to think of, okay, I need to do this storytelling and I have to do it in in a magical way that would that would draw people in nowadays. One of the things that we see often throughout the film is Teata being, you know, encouraged to hone in on what makes her different from everyone else around her mm-hmm. and to share that story so that she can share it with not only white people in order to sort of bridge the gap mm-hmm. between them, but also, you know, other Native Americans. Embracing the individuality right, rather right. than seeing it as something that's bad. Yeah. And I, that is a note that is touched on in Teata. Um, and that's something I really... I really uh, think is important because, you know, nowadays there's this kind of um, idea of how through magazines and everything, this unrealistic idea of how you're supposed to look um, and what's beautiful and what's not. And I I think, you know, it's, it's kind of terrible. Can you talk a, a little bit more about the way in which um, – especially as a Native woman, it, that plays into your auditioning and your roles. Because one of the things in the film that I noticed is that your uh, college professor and also the, the character's uh, future husband, who is white, they're both white, they're mm-hmm. the ones who are encouraging her. You know, you have to tell these stories. You have to, this is for, not just for you, it's for all of your people, for mm-hmm. everyone. And there's a little bit of a, a struggle b- for Teata between doing this Broadway show, which is not necessarily about, it's not going to get to those people who um, need to see them, these stories, right. and choosing between that and doing what 
she's been encouraged to do. Where is the line for you as an actor between representing your people and doing what you really want to do? Because I feel like especially for Native women, it can be sometimes constricting, like you're only getting asked to go for roles that are specifically about being Native American or Native um, as opposed to a role that you just might be good for, for not those reasons. Right. Um, It's a good one because that's often something that one faces. But I do have to say the industry is changing a bit with that. Um, I just got done shooting a TV show called The Alienist um, for six months in Budapest. And um, it's based on Caleb Carr's novel, The Alienist. Mm -hmm. And, um, And my character that I play, her name is Mary Palmer. And in the book, she is written as blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm. And um, and they ended up casting me in it. Uh, not once did they have me wear a little dreamcatcher earring or something to hint at that I'm Native American or mm-hmm. anything like that. I was just a person, and I and, and that was so great because oftentimes I find, you know, if you are getting a role or doing a role, it's the stereotype of something. And, you know, specifically Native Americans, we're not relics in a museum. Like, we are doctors. We are taxi drivers. We are all sorts of different things. You exist. (laughs) Yeah, we exist. We're not just the drunk Native or the one that goes, oh, or has a feather in the hair or where's the dream catcher earrings and Mm -hmm. necklaces or, you know, um, (laughs) I just I'm using that as an example because often I've had roles where they like they 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 have me wear that. And I'm like, no, (laughs) come on. Have you have you been able to veto that or is that like sort of uh, in the process? I mean, sometimes I mean, every every project I feel as artists, it's our responsibility to push that to push the the barriers and the limits a bit further mm-hmm. and um and so you know i i when i do anything i if it's right i always um try to <laughs> yeah put your put your foot down a little bit yeah yeah but um but yeah so i was so thankful to the whole creative team and to jakob varbruggen who is the director that um remembered my performance in the new world and he brought my name up to the creative team on the alienist um and to tnt and uh they all were like huh that that would actually be an interesting choice so i'm really really proud of tnt and for for that whole team that um that they themselves are pushing that 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 barrier within film as well of casting me in a role that was originally written for blonde hair, blue eyes, um, because that doesn't happen very often. Right. Um, at all. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Is it, it's, do you have an agent, uh, as well? I actually, (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I am actually uh, meeting with some different agents and managers right now. Oh, okay. Because I just recently parted ways with my 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 team. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah. I was just curious because I I wonder. I'm often wonder what it's like. I know that a lot of agents, for the most part, tend to be white, um, not people of color. There's a very small contingent of people mm-hmm. of color who are agents, and so I'm always curious about what those conversations are between the agent and their client as to the types of roles that they are look like taken out for. Like, have you ever had conversations with your previous agents about like if it has this in the in the script or in the casting description? Like, I'd rather not go out for it, or is that not really something you've had to deal with. I've been offered a f- like a film once where I was going to portray a, a woman from the Middle East, and um, the director offered me the role, read the script, and they just kind of portrayed her in a way that was really degrading and just not in the greatest way and and I had just gotten um, done doing a campaign with Amnesty International about violence against women and you know the actor side of me was like okay this is some interesting material and uh, I'd like to sink my teeth into it but then I was like you know what I I can't do this Mm. and I cannot portray a woman from that culture because first of all I'm not that Um, and uh since it is in such a degrading way that she is, like, I I just, it's my responsibility to also say no to something like that. Mm. Um, And I need to respect that it's not my culture. And, you know, maybe if there's an actress that is from that descent and she feels like she wants to do it, then... By all means, all power to her. Mm-hmm. But I just felt, you know, I I, yeah. I, I, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, because I would be upset if somebody, you know, did a, a, a native role and they weren't native. And it was in a very degrading, derogatory, sort of unempowering way. Yeah. And it would just be like, why? 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 Why would you do that? Right. Um, <laughs> would you have taken the role had it been better written, even though it it wasn't your your background? Um, you know, possibly there's a very fine line, hmm. um, because you're representing you're representing people, right? A culture, yeah, and so. There's a very fine line of being respectful to that. Mm-hmm. And so in any roles that I do and in any films that I that I that I've I've done, I really f- f- believe that their film is so powerful and very influential. Now, you've I know in the past you've you've sort of recoiled from the t- the term of being a political activist Mm -hmm. um do you still feel that way and and what what is it about the 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 phrase political political activist or political activism that made made you not really want to be labeled as such because i feel like what you 
whether it's human dealing with human rights issues, environmental issues, as you do, um, uh, you were arrested when you were younger with your mom uh, <laughs> right. in front of the White House for protesting the in the past. President. It's it's been that I I didn't want to kind of be labeled as that is uh, because politics divides people, and I was always focusing on what brings us together, our humanity, our human beings, mm-hmm. like, and not making it a political thing because, you know, um, it's, I really believe that, you know, the environment and human beings shouldn't suffer anymore because of politics and greed. But at this point, we are, we are in a very right. tumultuous time uh, where politics, cle- clearly there are some people, this is me throwing my opinion in here, but there are some people who <laughs> are right, and there are some people who are very mm. clearly wrong. And right. I, well, I, 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 I just wonder in if we the can thing still... that there is uh, sometimes there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now, we are in a very interesting place in the world. Um, but I think it's more important now than ever before for people to really come together and unite. There's power in unity. How do we do that, though, when some people don't want to listen or are, like, so set on dividing us? I just think of something like, you know, the Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the, for the, <clears throat> for the national anthem, which is something that was not meant to divide, but there are some people who disagree with him, even though the whole point of this country is to be able to protest peacefully. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about those types of things that we're up against, like what, what, like, how do we, how do we bridge that, that gap? Or is that, is that a gap still worth bridging? I know it's early. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm thinking because it's a really great question and it's yeah. a meaningful one. And especially I can understand a lot of young people possibly in the world feeling um, like, oh, Wow. There's so many things happening. What am I supposed to do? And I think it's realizing that we all possess the power of a grain of sand in a tipping scale. And still sometimes I think, why isn't somebody doing something about this horrible thing or that? And then I realized I am somebody. It's it's tough. I think that there are a lot of people doing small things, but it doesn't feel like for me that it's it's moving as quickly as it should. But... I can understand your sentiment as well. Yeah. My last question for you is, uh, when was the last time you saw yourself on screen in a film or TV show in something that you weren't actually a part of? So you can't say Teata. What do you, what do you mean? You felt represented. You felt as though, as whether it's as a Native woman, as a woman, you felt as though you uh, could relate to that character or to that show or that movie or that role uh there's a lot (laughs) oh okay yeah i mean um i don't know one of them that i always think of that i think is very powerful and beautiful just in the simple line of i see you avatar really yeah interesting um just the way that the navi people are of the acknowledgement of actually truly seen the other person seen seen them mm-hmm. 
because I feel like nowadays everyone walks by and you're like, hi, hi, hi. But do you actually see the person? Do you actually or is it just there's this like um, bulletproof invisible wall in front of you and the world and, you know, we we don't truly care when we ask somebody how are you Mm -hmm. but it's just more of a formal thing of like hi how are you but um that's one of the things the whole in in avatar that i that i really love and also i think that it's really important to show the beauty of cultures of people of places because i think if we start to show people what is so beautiful about these things, it will hopefully inspire them to want to protect and preserve those things for future generations. I also did some work in Brazil with with Greenpeace, and we were working with trying to bring awareness about the Awa community. There's only in between three and 400 of them left um, because they're getting killed by illegal loggers and different things like that. And, you know, it... it it would be it is going to be a truly sad day if they do get wiped out and same goes for dolphins for whales all the different things so um so yeah <laughs> well you're in luck because there's like four more movies coming out of, of avatar i think well funny thing um so natiri yeah um i have one of the first sketches of Neytiri that James gave me. Oh. Because... Uh, and that's James Cameron. Right. And with a really sweet note, he said, your beauty and work was my early inspiration for Neytiri. Too bad you were working on another film next time. Does that mean we might be seeing you in some future Avatar? Possibly. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I just, I'm really proud of him as a filmmaker for shedding light on such important issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that's our job as artists and filmmakers. It's our responsibility. Well, it's been an absolute... I'm so sorry. (laughs) I've been like all over the place. No, this is a a great conversation. It's been so wonderful to have you here. Oh, thank you. And everyone check out Teata. Thanks so much. And that's all for now. Teata had a short run in theaters last month, but we'll be sure to keep listeners in the know for when they can catch it streaming and on demand via our Facebook page. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlin Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Also this week, we want to recommend you check out Slate's Double X Gap Fest, our bi-weekly podcast about feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, Beyonce, and so many other issues of interest to women and their friends. It's hosted by NPR's Hannah Rosen, New York Magazine's Noreen Malone, and managing producer of Slate Podcast, June Thomas. Find and download it wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. 